Welcome back, everyone. This is Eric Ellison with the Digital Education Podcast. Happy March. And I'm back with my friend, Dennis Eastman. And Dennis, we're continuing our monthly conversation with educators on stories of becoming more human as we hear their stories about their work, but then how their interactions with students have made them, in many ways, more complete people. Um, and, and in a lot of ways, how it then impacts our work from there. And today, I'm with somebody who's been on the podcast with me before, who's, uh, who shared some of his expertise with, with me before at an event in Washington, D.C. Um, that we, we hosted a few years ago, Evan Willis. And Evan, thank you for being here. I'm going to let Dennis ask a bunch of questions, but I just wanted to, to throw it out to you to just introduce yourself how you got into education and maybe give us a little bit of a taste of your story and what you're doing today. So thanks, Eric, for having me again. I'm, I'm glad I didn't, I didn't do such a bad time the first time that I was allowed to come back again. So it's always a privilege to be reinvited. Uh, it's not uncommon for preachers to say, well, I don't need you to invite me back so I can say what I want to say, uh, but I'm happy to be here. Um, I am currently pastoring in North Carolina, Charlotte area, to be exact. And I am, um, I, am I am loosely adjacent to education, I would say, because, you know, I'm still primarily a pastor and plan to pastor until uh, I retire. Um, but, you know, uh, my mother's an educator, my grandmother's an educator. Um, I've been in schools, I've been around all kinds of schools. And so that's kind of what got me into education. Uh, and Currently, I'm a PhD candidate at University of North Carolina at Charlotte, um, awaiting to defend my dissertation, uh, hopefully in the coming weeks, and then I can put this all behind me and, and, and finally see the light in the tunnel. I should add, I'm married and I have four sons. So, so Evan, Give us a little bit of perspective. You talk a little bit about being adjacent to education because mm -hmm. you've got the insider-outsider view. Give us a little bit of a taste of the research that you're doing for your dissertation. And then just even that, that how that research has impacted you as a person and even as a, as a pastor, but then also that insider-outsider view of education. So, yeah. So I am, my dissertation is on the racial messages that black boys uh, or black males received while they attended conservative Christian schools. Um, but I kind of do a comparative analysis between um, predominantly white conservative Christian schools and black led conservative Christian schools. And when I say conservative, I'm not talking about Catholic. Um, I'm not talking about, uh, well, I'm primarily talking about Protestant evangelical schools. Um, and so I kind of got into that primarily because most of my education, I, well, actually all of my, all of my K-12, uh, all of my K through master's education was in conservative Christian education. Uh, spent um, a majority, all my elementary in predominantly white middle school through uh, undergrad degree in all black uh, Christian schools. And then uh, for my master's, I was in, uh, a diverse seminary. Uh, I feel like there's a question I'm forgetting to ask. What, was there one, what's the other part of the question I didn't answer? 
You know, what's it like, you know, as you think about when you see some of that research and that, re, you know, um, and maybe you could even share a little bit of what you discovered in that, but what, how does that impact you in, in your work as a pastor, but then also kind of a little bit of that insider outsider view of working, you know, with schools in your community and then even just, you know, in a broader basis? Yeah, so I think the way it's impacted me, uh, I think... I think entering into ministry, I was a lot more, let's play by the rules. And I'm not saying you throw all rules and caution to the wind like some people I know. Um, I'm just saying that rules matter, but people matter more. Um, and so, and and the work in ministry that, that we are to engage in, the work in ministry that I believe Jesus engaged in, was more than just dealing with the people who fit the right mold, but he oftentimes worked with people he disagreed with. Um, and I think sometimes we do a lot, uh, we, we get too consumed in politics to the fact that we're, we fail to see brother, people as brothers and sisters, and we see them more at, through their political ideologies. Um, so, um, and so I, I feel like towards the end of my seminary experience, um, I think with this book called Old Testament Ethics for the People of God, um, I grew up very much about, okay, here's what you do. And I can say, hey, I'm not murdering anybody. I'm not stealing. I'm not committing adultery. I'm not doing all these other things all these other people are doing. So I think I'm good. But what the book amplified to me was the importance of righteousness, not just being a personal piety, but being about social relationships and also about the society in which you live, affecting it positively. And so um, this PhD has pushed me um, to expand my borders of righteousness um, and the work of justice. Um, and I think, I think the biggest takeaway I have from my, from my, from my, from my data is that we have this race thing and this race conversation all wrong. All right, Dennis, Great. you get to ask the next question right wow. there. Go okay. jump in, Dennis. Jump uh, in, go after it. <laughs> Evan, you can't leave us hanging. <laughs> you said we have it all wrong. Well, um, I, 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 lo I love what you're saying. I love what you're um, expounding upon in terms of Jesus. Uh, Jesus to the masses looks a lot different than some Pollyanna-ish, like I'm serving these people in this little cookie cutter box, right? I, I love what you're saying. He touches them. He's amongst them. He's, um, he, he moves in. He gets closer. I love it. That's how he ministers. He gets closer. So, Help us get closer to our, our topic here with you left us hanging with, we've got this conversation on race all wrong. So help us uh, to know um, a little bit more about what you discovered in, in which also gives, uh, gives launch to the statement you just made. So um, a large part of what I, I think I found is that when you compare and contrast um, the racial messages that the black males receive it, between both environments, they were starkly different. Um, in 
black environments, there was an explicit racial message that was intentional, strategic, and given. Whereas in predominantly white environments, it was a colorblind silence approach, which I believe created the atmosphere for more racial microaggressions. Uh, because students had to work through their own understandings of race. And it's kind of like the sex conversation, right? We, you know, purity culture sometimes doesn't want to talk about sex. Uh, we don't need to talk about sex with kids. But what people always say, what I oftentimes hear from preachers and, and other people in the church who are more progressive in their thinking around these conversations on sex, if you're not talking to them about sex, they're going to be informed about sex somewhere else. And so if you're not having conversations around race, there's going to be racial messages sent from other places that aren't rooted in the body of Christ. So the church has to begin to think critically around these issues of race. Secondly, I would add that race is a sinful construction, right? So because we live in a sinful world, there's been the construction of race uh, that was used for the benefit of economic exploitation and used for the benefit of um, creating opportunities that were for some, but not for others. The problem is we want to have a conversation about race on a moral level only. And a moral conversation of race misses the dynamics and the importance of race. So the issue, um, and Michael Emerson and Christian Smith wrote a book in 2000 called Divided by Faith, in which they interviewed over, I think over 3,000, uh, over 2,000 um, white evangelicals and black evangelicals around the conversation of race. And obviously they had starkly different, differing views on it. And in this conversation around race, uh, you had um, white Christians claim that race is a sin problem. You can't fix it by government policy. You can't fix it by instituting changes. You can't fix it by doing DE&I kind of things, right? Whereas black people can, could talk clearly and see like, okay, there, there are clear economic things. There's clear conversations. They just weren't engaging with with their white friends and white peers in church because they, they already kind of knew what it was. Um, and so because we look at race solely and talk about it almost explicitly on a moral level, like, oh, it's a hard issue, God has to fix it in us. Then we fail to see how race is operating all throughout the world around us and how it still plays a prominent role in opportunity and things of that nature. Uh, and so to be racist is not to be immoral. Now, what I mean by that is it's not that racism is a neutral thing. What I mean when I say that is to be racist in large part is shaped and informed by the society in which you live. And so if you are able to live your life blind of race, it only strengthens the role race plays and racism plays in your life. And so instead of running away from, oh, I'm not racist, I'm a good person, don't equate those two. There are good people who are racist because they don't understand what they can do to affect positive change around race. 
And so we have to embrace the fact, okay, I have prejudice. Okay, I have bias. Okay, I may be a racist. But it's not about who you are. It's about who you're becoming. And if we can embrace that, I mean, that's sanctification, right? Sanctification, the work of a lifetime, is not about who you were. It's about who you're becoming. If we can embrace that conversation and stop feeling ashamed when people highlight conversations on race or feeling like we're being called out personally, we're having a conversation about race, we're missing the point. Like, I, I, for example, uh, on social media, um, someone asked, uh, there was, a, I think, a TikTok, actually, uh, when were you first made aware of race? Or when was your, you first realized that all things were equal? I, I recognized the second grade with my white Christian school teacher who didn't treat me fairly. Now, there are people who I went to school with who are like, shocked, how can you say such a thing? You know, are you sure she was racist? They were, they were, they were appalled. My thing is, I have no hate in my heart for, towards my, my second grade teacher. She, she grew up in an era where she was born and raised in a Jim Crow era. Now, I don't, I don't know if she lived in the South, but, you know, those, you know, Jim Crow wasn't just a Southern thing. Um, They're still um, natural prejudice, regardless of laws. Um, and so she just really didn't know how to deal with a Black boy, period. She didn't. She had no preparation to deal with a Black boy in the classroom. And so I'm mature enough now to look back and see that, that I don't hold that against her. But my issue is not that she was racist or I had racist encounters with her. My issue would be that if she still thinks the same way nearly 30 years later. Evan, can I hop in? Mm -hmm. You've said a lot. <laughs> um, my question, um, if I can back up a few thoughts ago, you say that in a um, evangelical Christian school, and we're going to say, uh, you use the, the term colorblind. Mm -hmm. So um, you've got these teachers who are trying to teach from a colorblind point of view, and they think that that's the best favor that they can do for their students. Mm -hmm. I mean, whether they're Hispanic, Asian, Black, right? Regardless of your ethnicity in here, I'm, I'm trying to see you and treat you all in a manner that's colorblind. Um, yeah. What can, and this, the whole theme of our conversation is becoming more human. So what can, uh, what can we do assist our, uh, assist our teachers of all ethnicities what can they do to help um uh in the classroom situation to create a forum and an environment that is not colorblind but is um very aware of hey there's differences here and those are our strengths and what are some things that we can do? What are some things that, some ways that you would offer um, to our educator friends out there who are listening to say, hey, here's some things you could do in your classroom to, starting tomorrow. So what I would say is, walk into your classroom this weekend with no students in there, like you've never been there before, and tell me what you see. 
Tell me what you see on the walls. Tell me what you see in your curriculum. Tell me what you see in your course materials. And let's start to ask, because my assumption, let me say my assumption off. My assumption is you're gonna find out that most of the representation on the walls, in the hallway, in the books are gonna reflect white children or white people. Ask yourself, one, was going with the colorblind approach working when you didn't see race and notice that the representation that is heavily dominated in the materials on the walls throughout the building are depictions, iconography, even talking about biblical characters of white people, okay? Then say, how can I bring in representation? First, let's start with representation. How can I bring in diverse representation into the classroom? What course materials are there? What pictures are there? Can I intentionally use in stage to provide an affirming message without me having to speak? That's one. Two, ask yourself this question. When is the last time I invited a black pastor to come and give a worship talk? When's the last time I invited a Latinx pastor to come and give a worship talk? When's the last time I brought in someone other than the community that I'm living in and used to into this classroom? And what message might that be sending? Um, then I would begin to engage the parents of the students to learn more about their family, their background, where they're from. But no, no, when I say where they're from, don't ask them what part of Mexico are they from. Don't ask them, you know, what part of Africa are you from? Find out about the family dynamics from the homes they came from. You know, uh, one person in my study said they viewed, when he went there, he felt as if the teachers and his peers viewed him as a mission project. They would always ask him, do you live in an apartment? They didn't know he was the son of a dentist and his grandfather was a pastor. You know, so they, they didn't see those components. All they saw and assumed because he was a person of color, because he was black, that he must've been economically disadvantaged. And so learn more and, and invite them, you know, show and tell, invite them to bring their classroom, their, their, their home life, their world into the classroom, right? When they write poetry, have them write about their neighborhood, have them write about their grandparents, have them write about their family. Use that as clues. What you don't want to do is be like obvious. Like, so, so uh, Tyrone, tell me about, what it's like to be black. That is a lot, that is, let me say, that's the worst thing you could do. So thirdly, recognize more than likely you're starting off disadvantaged when you're approaching racial minoritized groups because they're coming in with presuppositions. Or they have no idea and they're in culture shock. So you have to earn the trust of the students coming in. And you earn that trust by believing in them. You earn that trust by talking with them. You earn that trust by treating them like humans. 
very thoughtful. Um, okay, so here's a here's a question uh, follow up on that. Mm-hmm. In some of your additional conversations with people, and or you can even talk to me about your experience, whichever direction you'd like to go. Um, what are the messages that you hear that seem to be overt that are being sent to um, young black young black boys and young black young men and in both the evangelical you know Christian school and you you juxtapose it with I don't know if you intended to say public school but I'm curious, and maybe it's in different environments, right? You said you did inclinate that there's a message sent here and there's a message sent here, depending on who they're sitting in front of. So I'm interested in what that, what that message or messages, even if they're microaggressions, may be. So actually, I'm, I'm only, I mean, I'm, re, I'm, I'm actually looking at black-led Christian schools, so black evangelical schools versus white evangelical schools. But, oh, okay, very good, thank you. Yeah, no problem, no problem. But um, in the black-led conservative Christian schools, the message was black is excellent, and the excellence was manifested in expectation of excellence. I um, mean, excuse me, intelligence, um, celebrated of giftedness, celebra- the celebration of giftedness. Um, Excellence being uh, talked about as more than just um, more than just like the typical ways, but seeing excellence in musical performance and the mastery over. I mean, there's you know, there's historical narratives that black quarterbacks are good athletes, not good quarterbacks, and it's because of belief that black people don't have the medical capacity to master uh, the complexity of play designs, right? So. Um, but seeing excellence and genius through various lenses. And, and I would say black people feeling as if they were seen as more fully human and less as a stereotype. Uh, in the uh, white Christian schools, um, blackness was oftentimes seen through racial tropes, which are racial characterizations. Um, that have existed since slavery, uh, that have manifested differently based on different social contexts, different social areas of the country or the world. Um, but blackness was seen as economically disadvantaged. Blackness was seen as socially deviant. Blackness was seen, and the message was was sent that um, they were uh, not intellectually capable. And message was seen that they were elite athletes. And that was their value, particularly in these environments. What can you bring to me athletically? Um, so those were kind of like the dominant um, messages that people heard. Yeah. So, so Evan, let me ask a, a final question, because I think we may have to do a follow-up on your research when it's all done. And, and because there's so much here and next steps, right? And and I appreciate you beginning to pull at these threads. But but my last question for for this podcast, because you've mentioned it so many times, you know, in different ways, is you know, it's like who were you and who are you becoming? 
what's our language, you know, and what's our beliefs and what, how does that change and how can we become more purposeful about it? How can we become more thoughtful of it? And, and we look at our world right now, right? Where it's just, uh, we won't even go there, right? The madness and the craziness and, you know, just the different things in that sort of sense that, that doesn't, you know, I, you've, you've touched on so many different things, but one of the things that you said back at the beginning that I think even there's a through line in it, like, you know, one of the ways that you're changing is less interested in even playing by the normative rules per se. Like, you know, as a pastor and as, you know, somebody who's researching education and especially religious education in these different spaces, how would we push the boundaries of, of what we've been given and say, you know what, there's a better way. Like, what are the places where you're pushing and that you've changed and in, in how you're doing this that you would encourage others to, to push in their setting too? Um. question i would say that a lion's share of what i do now is reaching across the line and by that i don't mean necessarily the racial line i do do that but i mean like for so many years christians have been so exclusive and we've been afraid to partner with people who we don't agree with on one on one iota. Um, and I believe that, you know, as we watch mainstream denominations die uh, in, here in the America, we have to become ingratiated into our communities. But I want to add that this is not just a church problem or, or a, a school problem. This is a, a global crisis in the sense of everyone's pushing closer and closer towards being an individual and forgetting that we're a part of a larger community. Um, and so I more intentionally build relationships and partner and connections. I more intentionally try to walk among the people. Uh, one of my favorite authors uh, wrote a book called Desire of Ages. And uh, she talks about how John the Baptist, although he lived off into the desert, would oftentimes come down into the city and study and watch the people uh, in preparation for how he was going to minister to them. Uh, and so I've intentionally tried to open my church doors more to more things. Now, there, there, there are lines we're just not going to cross. Right? There, there are lines, guys, I, I'm just not going to cross in terms of um, endorsement, in terms of me endorsing it. But I will say I have learned to meet people where they are, live among them, talk with them. And I've learned to take things bit by bit. Like if you sit down and you start to analyze all the problems in the world, you go crazy. And you'll be bitter and miserable. And I've learned to brighten the corner where I am. And I believe that more effective ministry, more effective change happens in the humanization of people and the moving away from the 
objectifying of people through political, political ideologies, through telling them because they're racist who they are, uh, because they go to the churches how they think, yeah, just learn to sit down and listen to people. Evan, I hope this is not an end, right? So you said at the beginning, thank you for having us back, you know, a second time. I, yeah. I hope, Dennis, if, if you're up for it, we go third time and maybe even fourth time and dig deeper and pull at some of these themes. But Evan, thank you so much. And we appreciate you. We appreciate your work and we appreciate your time today. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you all for having me. If, if anyone wants to follow me, I'm on um, IG, Twitter. Uh, Twitter is um, Rev, like R-E-V, Ill Will, which was my high school nickname, I-L-L-W-I-L-L and 88. But probably come this May, it's going to transition to Rev Ill Will PhD. So, but that's my name on both platforms. We're excited for that PhD. <laughs> Thank you, Dennis. Thank you, Evan. Good stuff. Thank you, Evan.